Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today we've got a great show in store for you. We've got Latitude's co-founder and CEO, Kevin Leach, on the line to discuss our setups for this fall, as well as a deep dive into the individual components of gear Latitude offers. We discuss the methodology behind the designs, material breakdowns, and what Kevin and I personally do to modify our equipment in preparation for season. Kevin is a very detailed and analytical mechanical engineer, and he plays a huge role in developing some of the best saddle hunting equipment in the world. On top of that, he's a great deer hunter and just an overall great guy, so I think there's a ton to take away from this episode. One last thing before we get into today's show, if you're looking to pick up any last minute gear before season, head over to latitudeoutdoors.com, pick out what you need, you can save 20% off your order by using the code INSESSION. That's one word, INSESSION, you can find that in the description of this podcast as well. Also, if you haven't checked out Latitude Outdoors on YouTube, go check that out. We have a bunch of different web series over there. We have the Incession series. We have the Grit series, which is all the hunts from the team last year. And then they have hunt recaps as well, which are very informative. So I've learned a ton from those videos over there. I think that you guys would enjoy them. Thank you once again for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. It's going to be a killer hunt. I mean, we're going to have all these different guys with different approaches. I can't wait. I've got a bone to pick with Indiana after last fall so that, you know, I guess coming down the line, it'll be a couple episodes, I think, from now as far as the Grit series this year is concerned, but you're going to see a big swing and a miss on a pretty nice buck. You know, not a, not a giant, but a nice buck for a four-day hunt for me. I was only able to go down there four days last year, and I think it was the 7th or the 8th, we had a big wind switch after, you know, kind of a stale few days of weather. It switched to a northeast and went in and made a move and I'm not going to tell all the details I'll let it you know come through on that episode but it was a shot on the ground and I smoked about a 3 inch diameter tree <laughs> so oh my gosh uh, and, but we thought we hit the deer initially it was a big crack and you'll see on the video we got all jacked up about it and then you know we came off of our high pretty quickly when we walked up there to oh, find the arrow. That's a heartbreak. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you'll you'll get to see. It was really cool how that unfolded. Uh, so I'll save it for for that release for people. But yeah, I have some vengeance to take on the state of Indiana. Or re- revenge maybe is the the appropriate word. But that was very close last year to getting it done. You'll so. get it done. There's no we. I mean, we glassed a, a ton of bucks out there this week. There was deer all over the place. So that's I feel exciting. like we're gonna be in them for sure, man. Well, cool. So speaking of season, let's. Let's get into your setup for this year a little bit. You know, we're looking at, we're two weeks out of, of Nebraska. Well, you're headed to Nebraska in <laughs> yeah, two weeks. It's crazy to think. It, I know. It's, it's here. I mean, I'm like, I'm starting to get anxiety a little bit. I feel behind right now, but I know that we're just going to be able to, you know, we're going to be on deer. So going out to Nebraska, let's, let's go through your thought process a little bit. How are you attacking that hunt? So Nebraska... <laughs> This summer, just the conditions we've had, I think is setting up very similar to last year. Now, something could change over the next couple of weeks. A monsoon could go through Nebraska. But last year, we had just hot and dry conditions, and it looks like we're going to have the exact same thing again. Uh, a lot of standing corn you know, with a September 1st opener out there. So a lot of cover, a lot of food, uh, but hot. So last year, water... You know, it might sound obvious, but coming from Michigan where there's just kind of always water everywhere, no matter how dry and hot it is, because we hunt a lot of swamp country, this being kind of more open farm ag land, water was absolutely key last year. You had to find a lot of these these um, pieces were, they're actually not that big out there either. That was a, a change coming from Michigan because we have so much public land, but they all seem to have some sort of a little water hole on them, just, you know, kind of a cattle water hole, essentially. The ones that had a good clean 
keen water hole is where we found the deer, or at least the better bucks. That and then keying in on, I guess, what the food sources were, because they were that first week of September, it seems like out there they were shifting very quickly. They were going from beans to either acorns, and then sorghum ended up being the hot one that Alex got on. Um, That one, for whatever reason, when we were there last year, had the biggest bucks on it. So that's something that I didn't key on last year that I'll be looking for this year is that food source specifically. So, you know, it, it will be nice though. I will, I'll have to say we blew out a lot of properties last year and found some really good beds and figured out how these things were setting up on the fence lines. And, you know, downwind of standing corn was a big deal as far as bedding and travel in the evening. So that'll be a key this year as well. But kind of figuring out what that hot food source is as it's shifting near water and uh, downwind of that standing corner, kind of the three big things I took out of last year that I'll be using this year. The water thing is huge. And I, you know, I haven't been like this great Western hunter by any means, but yeah. I know a lot of guys that hunt out there and they're, it's water. Like uh, Tony Peterson is a huge water guy. So with the water thing, did you guys key on that right away? Like, did you, when you were going out there last year, did you know, Hey, we need to look for water or was it something that as you were out there, you evolved and adapted and realized that you needed to target? I think we all talked about it heading out there. Like, Hey, it's been hot. They've had a drought. We should probably be keen on water. So we we're looking for like creeks. And then we, you know, found these little cattle ponds and we we're trying to figure out what made a cattle pond a productive, you know, location. So we talked about it, but I, I think just, you know, coming from Michigan, there's, there's a lot of benefits to getting a repetition under your belt with something new, a new situation. And while we talked about it, we probably didn't emphasize it enough right away. Cause it's just like finding the hot food source. Like it's kind of like finding the hot water source, what made a good one. And there were some stale ones that, you know, they were kind of stinky. You could tell a lot of cattle had been in them. We were kind of told and going into this, you know, avoid the the cattle pastures, the area with the cattle. And we kind of found differently. Honestly, we found out that it seemed like the more mature bucks really didn't care about that. And they actually almost like those areas, maybe because hunters are avoiding them, but they, they seem to figure out how to live within, you know, around the cattle just fine. It wasn't a, a deterrent for the, at least the more mature buck. As far as water, what's the difference between clean water and dirty water? And is there any way to you know, find that on a map or do you actually have to go in and put boots on the ground and recognize it? It's a boots on the ground. So we were literally just, you could find the little water holes on these pieces and just mark all of them. And then it was just a matter of driving around and running in there and checking it. It was so dry out there that finding even tracks was a challenge. Um, the only place to find tracks was around these ponds. And it was very hard to age them even around these ponds because, you know, we tested by kind of making our own track and then coming back the next day. And it, it just didn't change a whole lot, uh, the visual aspect of it. But uh, the pond would tell you really quickly, you know, there's deer tracks around it and you can find a big mature buck track. So that was kind of the indicator. That was how we kind of took inventory on a particular piece, like you would do with a trail camera on a field edge or something. So that was a real quick way to do that. And if it was a, a dirty water hole, maybe the cattle been using a bunch, the tracks just weren't there. So it was pretty much track related, but you'd have to run in and check each pond individually. Did the clean ones have like running water? Did they have like, a, were they spring fed with a drainage and the other ones were just stagnant or was there, it, was it just cattle use that was causing that? I'm not hundred percent sure. They, I think it was probably mostly cattle use. I think the other thing, the ones that had more activity, whitetail activity around them had some form of cover nearby. 
uh, whether that was corn or just a, a small patch of timber with a lot of brush in it or a thicker fence line or something like that. As if there was bedding nearby, it was even better. Out in Montana, when we have big droughts, I used to live out there. And one thing that I could do on Onyx is go on there and you could actually see active springs on Onyx. Like they'll have a little spring marker sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah. And like, so you zoom in on it, you're like, oh, there's a spring right there. And even I believe on Google Earth, it'll do that every once in a while too, okay. where you can see like these specific springs and everything else is dry and then all you see is like just green brows in that drainage and you're like well there's there's water right there but the interesting the water thing's huge to me because i mean re- even right here you know within it's central ohio we have a bunch of strip mines and there's a lot of toxic water and okay. what i've noticed is like if i go check a bunch of different ponds if they're orange or brown they almost look like they're rusty yeah there's no deer tracks around the ponds at all. But if you find one that doesn't have that, maybe it's a little higher in elevation where it's not having all that leech drain into it, Yeah, it'll have a bunch of deer tracks around it and they're actually drinking out of it. So finding good water here is another thing. We do have more streams at least. So you always have the creeks to fall back on. Sure. But when you get in the strip mine land, it's the same game almost where it's like, there's a lot of just, it's toxic water. You know, it's, it's dirty water. It's the, the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's really interesting, man. So as far as... uh your out-of-state hunts, are you using the same setup pretty much all year? Yeah. So historically, I, you know, I've not really had the time to do a lot of traveling. So traveling is a relatively new thing for me. So I'd say that my system is evolving a little bit. However, there's not a huge difference between what I'm doing in-state and out-of-state with my setup and my gear. I think the biggest variable is in Michigan, it's it's 100% swamp hunting for me personally. And when you're in the swamp, moisture management is, is, it's a big, it's a big variable, especially, you know, we're colder weather typically, right? So managing sweat and moisture just to stay warm and and comfortable and be able to sit on stand and not be fidgeting around and, and that kind of thing is probably the biggest difference between at home and elsewhere. You know, hunting, I've hunted Ohio now a couple of times, Indiana, we did the hills there. So while the terrain doesn't have the moisture, you still have some moisture management as far as just getting in and out because you're going up and down elevation. So just managing sweat really your your body moisture is you know i don't know i found that to be easier than managing moisture in the swamp i have a whole like clothing system and how i pack things and then obviously for both of them just being as lightweight and streamlined as possible has been a big a big component of it so there's a lot of parallels with some subtle differences more more on the clothing side than anything as far as differences i feel like a lot of those personal experiences with trying to streamline stuff and stay lightweight and efficient is the mastermind behind a lot of the designs of the products we have as yeah. well I, I get that vibe a lot with everything we have. It's all very streamlined and efficient and everything makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you go into a swamp in the dark, it's, you know, it's terrible. Like it's not any fun. So by the time I get to the tree, which is typically two hours before light in Michigan, a lot of times that tree, the base of that tree is the only dry spot in that area. If I do set my stuff down at all, I have to be very careful so it doesn't get just soaking wet. So when you have to deal with that kind of crap, just going in, to a spot, you want the gear to work very efficiently. You want it to be simple. You don't want to like really stress about the process once you get to the tree. You just want to go up and get settled. Like for me, 
Um, I actually will hunt a lot of early October mornings in these swamps. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that a common setup in Michigan is a big swamp with private ag around it. So evening access can be really tough a lot of times. So that that traditional let them get back to bed, hunt them in the evening in early October, it's harder to find an effective setup like that oftentimes in Michigan. So backdooring in the morning is something that I've spent a lot of time on getting uh, as good as I can at. So even in early October, so I will oftentimes get in, like I said, I'll get to the tree. I'll be at the tree two hours before daylight. And I'm typically setting up for a J hook. You know, in that scenario, I have found that as far as noise, I can be as noisy as I want getting in. It's a matter of getting to the tree as quickly as possible. But once I'm to the tree, I want to get off the ground and up in the air as quick as I can. Then it doesn't matter really once I'm up at height, I can take my time getting organized as long as I'm I'm quiet. Oftentimes I'll hear deer coming in around me while I'm getting set up. But I need to get to the tree and get off the ground. So a lot of that comes through in, in our gear that we build and design and, and how it all works together. It's to get to the tree quickly and get off the ground quickly and up out of the, you know, the eyesight of the deer or, the, or for them to be able to hear you type of thing. So funny you say that because I never really cared about that at the tree efficiency as far as what I was doing with my gear at that point until I started hunting wetter areas like swamps and marshes. Yes. And I was actually in, <laughs> I was in Northern Michigan in December. It was after they actually extended muzzle, muzzleloader that season, uh, that year. And you could use rifles as well. Mm-hmm. So they just wanted deer to get killed apparently. But I was in that frozen swamp up there, waist deep water, breaking through ice to get out near some beds, which by the way, we had some good encounters, but I would get out there to the tree and the tree is in the water. Yep. And I'm like, well, I can't a take my waders off. So I'm hunting out of my waders yeah. and, and B I can't set any of my gear on the ground, but I don't have a process to make that work. Right. Like I don't even have, what do I do? You know, my stands on my back with my gear, camera gear and everything. How do I make this work? And so after that, I started thinking about that efficiency a lot and it took me a long time to, to dial in that process. It's still not where I want it, but I feel like I'm moving towards that. And I feel like we as a team collectively are, are trying to design products around that efficiency. So that's something that's very important to me now that really for a long time wasn't until I got in that situation. But it's just one of those things that you want to make sure that your system, that you're practicing that a lot and that it's efficient for any circumstance that might arise. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of guys think about like, you know, they don't want to put a lot of gear or clothing at the base of the tree when they get there to minimize scent and whatnot. And, and, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. For me, I try to develop and design my system so that when I get to the tree, the only thing that is going to touch the ground is my weapon. For me, it's my bow, right? So it's a matter of just kind of reaching behind and hooking up my pull-up rope to the bow, setting the bow at the base of the tree, and then I'm going up. So access to your gear where it's placed on your body and your system is all developed. Or for us, it's heading in that direction, right? To be able to do that with everything, no matter what you're using. So, you know, at the the very least, you might need to just swing your pack around and pop your sticks off. But we want to try to minimize, you know, what's going on at the base of the tree because that's where you can probably save the most time. You don't want to try to climb the tree faster, right? You want to stay safe. And oftentimes you need to be quiet climbing the tree. And so, you know, slow is quiet, right? Um, so there's there's time to be saved there. And I think a lot of that monkeying around at the base of the tree is, you know, it can, it can cause you to get busted, whether it's a morning or an evening. Oh, it definitely can. So 100%. So let's get into your actual gear that you're carrying in to have that efficient process. So what does your setup look like? So my setup, you know, I kind of look at 
the the backpack, honestly, as the central part of the system as far as being organized. It's funny I say that because we don't have a backpack yet. Um, I'm sure there's one coming, but I just run a small pack, right? So typically in kind of that thousand cubic inch range, um, the one sort of trade-off there is when you get later in the season, the colder weather, you have to get a little creative in how you bring in your layers. But that, you know, that's a whole nother subject. But I'm typically a small pack. I actually, over the last few years, have just been running like a Badlands Eastern Day pack. So you can look that one up. But it's a thousand cubic inches, which is 10 liters. I actually carry, strap my sticks to that, um, which I run like three sticks with uh, multi-step aiders or a multi-step aider that I bring up with me, which is not something I suggest for people. I'm on the extreme end as far as, I guess, the complexity of my climbing. And I have an an athletic background, that's why. So I'm I'm comfortable doing that, right? I'm a taller guy. I'm 6'2". I got got a long step-to-step distance. And I have an athletic background. So for me, it's no problem. So I only bring in three short sticks, you know, that 17-inch step-to-step range sticks. And I actually tend to carry those in the bottom of my pack so that I can just reach around and pop them off when I get to the tree. Uh, Sometimes I will carry them vertically centered on the back of the bag so I can just take one shoulder strap off, swing them around and pop them off. So both of those options work great. My platform, I typically actually have that hanging off the back of my saddle. The only time I don't do that is if I'm like using a kayak for access or I have a really, really long walk. And then that'll go on the back of my bag if it's not in the back of my saddle. Um, The bag that I've had Eastern Day, it doesn't kind of work great for that because you got to take your platform off before you take off your sticks when you get to the tree. So it's an extra step. So, you know, something that a bag that kind of flip-flops that scenario is would be a more optimal solution. So, you know, having a lightweight platform if you're carrying it on the back of your saddle is, uh, is very important. And having a saddle that doesn't want to ride down, you know, with a with a waist belt that stays tight. Uh, if you are doing that, it's important to have both of those because that works together so that it's not constantly trying to slide off when you're walking in. So for me, I don't have that issue at all. And I, I'm going in pretty deep oftentimes. I like the platform hanging there. I just use a couple of Night Eyes gear ties or like Genesis 3D printing has some really cool clips that you can hang uh, various platforms off of. And then it's just right there. I don't have to do anything when I get to the tree. It's ready to go. And when I get up to height, uh, I just reach around and grab it. So quick, easy access to the platform is a big deal. But three lightweight sticks, platform, you know, a backpack kind of on the smaller side, I would say, compared to compared to most. I don't typically bring like a lot of calls. I typically have a grunt call. That's it. My weapon, my release, and then, uh, you know, my layers. In the swamp, there's some variables as far as footwear is concerned. So it's at minimum always, you know, rubber boots, but oftentimes hip waders get thrown in the equation. If I'm using a kayak, just kind of depends on where I'm going. I might bring the, uh, the knee boots and switch to those when I get to where I'm going, but I like wearing the hip waders when I'm paddling so I don't get, you know, the spray from the paddle on me and get wet. So, so again, back to kind of staying dry. I have my gear strap for getting up in the tree. So I, we've talked a lot about getting to the tree and the base of the tree. You can kind of see that's where I focus a lot of my thought and energy on. I think that's there's a lot of opportunities for improvement with what's on the market and how they kind of work together in those areas of the process. So, But once I'm up in the tree, like I said, three sticks, I'm using a five-step movable aider. So my first stick goes on the tree as high as I can get it. And I put the aider on and I, you know, I shimmy up that. Um, My other two sticks are strapped together with just like a little rubber strap. So same strap that we have packaged now with our our, uh, Speed Series climbing sticks. Um, That's kind of where that came from. 
Uh, so when I get up to that first stick, all I got to do is just open that and take off the next stick. The third one remains hanging on my hip. And I just use like, you know, I tie a piece of paracord to that stick or you can use like a night eyes gear tie. There's a bunch of different ways to kind of skin that cat. I just try to make sure to minimize how much it can swing on my hip just so it's not clanking around on anything. You can stay quiet better that way. Most commonly, I'm using that five step aider on the first two sticks. So there, that just depends on the tree and the setup, right? Um, as far as what I'm doing with the aider to get to a specific height. And I'm evaluating that both on the ground and as I'm climbing, even in the dark, once in a while, I'll just pop on the headlamp, especially if it's a spot I'm going into blind and just evaluate my shooting lanes and my cover as I'm going up. So that's important. Yeah, I would say I very rarely have a need to get that high in some of the states that I hunt, but I've seen videos of you hunting out in some of those swamps and it's like a lone tree that <laughs> sticks out like a sore thumb. And so I can definitely understand the need to be able to get as high as you possibly can out there. Yeah, you, you want to just kind of look like a water tower in the distance, right? <laughs> so like, you know, a lot of the swamps have dead trees in them in Michigan, and the leaf cover is off by, by October 1st most of the time and yeah. on most of the trees. So I, I try, sometimes that's just all you have to work with. You know, you're going up a telephone pole that's six, six inches in diameter, and you're making sure it's not cracking on the way up because you can't tell if it's dead or not yet. And you're just simply getting as high as you can to get out of their line of sight as much as possible. The trade-off there is deer at distance are going to be able to see you easier. So from a hunting standpoint, if you are going to do that, get up as high as you can when there's minimal cover, you really have to minimize your movement when you're sitting there. So I am a statue in those those scenarios. I will literally, I actually like to sit more than lean in a saddle. And in that scenario in particular, um, I will just sit there with my head up against the, you know, my tether or up against the the tree and I will just pivot my eyes left and right. I mean, I'm not even turning my head typically. And that's just the nature of the scenario. You have no cover. You're It's like going out, sitting out in your front yard and hoping a deer walks up to the feeder 10 yards from you, right? Yeah. So, so have you adapted at all with a camera guy? I know that even down here in Ohio, like, uh, I've got a lot of lower cover trees that I can be in, you know, a couple sticks off the ground. And a lot of those are in like a Y or it's on an area where I just pop up over a shelf and I can hunt. I can utilize the terrain and the cover a lot to hide the two of us. But even even with all that, I've still had to adjust my setups just because you have double the amount of people in a tree. So I can imagine out there in the swamp and those wide open trees, there's got to be some sort of you got to have a thought process of how you're going to hide both of you now, right? Yeah, that was a huge learning moment for me last fall, and I screwed that up majorly third day of season in Michigan. Derek and I actually went in on this buck I've been, I had been chasing for, I think that was the, last year was the third season. He was a four and a half year old on Michigan Public. Real nice buck. I mean, just a, a monster for the area. And we... Uh, went in. I knew the I know the area really well, but I did not have a tree picked for where he was crossing through, which was a mistake. Uh, I set a camera in there uh, when we got back from Nebraska, so it was mid September, which is pretty late to get him out and to it's pretty much a bedding area. It didn't seem to bother him though. I went in on a rainy day. I made the mistake of not picking the tree, but I was not anticipating getting this buck in this spot. So we had to go in blind and it was a morning hunt. We were getting them in daylight on the camera in the morning in early October. I mean, 
an hour after daybreak, which was very abnormal behavior. I don't know what he was thinking, but maybe there had been no one in there for a while. So we tried to go in and take advantage of that. And we ended up picking a tree that was uh, no cover, right? Very skinny. And he popped out into an opening 150, 60 yards from us and looked down the trail that was coming from him right to underneath our tree. And he saw us. He picked us at 150 yards. And he made a big loop around and disappeared into some thick stuff. That was it. Yeah. So <laughs> that was like a- three days into Michigan season. I was like, well, I got to think about this a little bit differently. So after the fact, there was there was actually a, a short but thick pine about 20 yards from us on the other side of this trail or maybe 30 yards. And um, had we set up in that 10 feet off the ground, we probably would have killed them. But we were actually 20 feet up into, you know, a a tiny little tree with no cover and got picked at 150 yards. And that deer came out of the brush. He had to make a left turn to go down the trail to come towards us. He took three steps out of the brush and turned his head and looked down the trail up into the air. I mean, that's a Michigan, that's a mature Michigan public land buck. Like he was looking up into the trees at 200 yards across this big opening before he went through it and he got us. So, yeah. So the rest of the season, I had to think about that a bit more. Yeah. I felt like I got a little bit better throughout the fall, but the Northern Michigan camp buck was, you know, it was a few days after that. And I was sitting with Corey and we were in a tree that didn't have a lot of cover. It was just unfortunately where we had to be. And that one, we got as high as we could. I positioned him so that he was directly on the backside of this like eight inch diameter tree. So as the deer are coming in, at least he's sort of in line with that tree trunk. And then I was off to the side to be able to make the shot with minimal movement. So I set the trail up right on my strong side. So it was a matter of grabbing the bow and drawing, no moving around otherwise. And I told Corey, this was not in the episode, but I told, I think we just weren't filming it again, again, learning that process. And I told him after we set up, because he was laughing about how high we were. He had never sat that high. And I said, you watch. These deer are going to come out of that little, we, there was basically a transition out of some thick cedar swamp into this like strip of cattails. And there was a little bridge that we sent up on uh, that they were going through. Um, so all the trees in the cattails were dead with no, no foliage and no cover. And that's where we had to set up. And I said, Corey, you watch. As soon as he steps out, if the deer comes through and it's a buck, that has any age to it at all, he's going to step out of that tree line and look straight up in the air. And that's exactly what he did. And it was a two and a half year old. Yeah. Like it was not a big, a big mature buck, but for the area, that's, you know, not a bad one. Uh, He pegged us and we just froze. And luckily it was about a full five minute standoff, which wasn't in the video, right? You got to cut it down, but um, it was a standoff. Then he took two steps and then another standoff and he took two steps and it lasted, I think almost 15 minutes. He went for him to go 10 yards. The little four point that was in front of him never looked up, just ran right through right underneath us. And then it looked back as like, you know, what's the problem? Looking at the other one that was kind of hesitating. So it's just funny to, you know, kind of predict that. Yeah. It's very repeatable in Michigan. It it definitely is. And yeah, it's just going to be, it's going to be a learning curve for a couple of years. I think there's, there's so many things that I've just been thinking about doing differently. And one of those things, honestly, is hunting really low. I've thought about hunting, you know, if they're all, if they're picking us out really easy, especially as the foliage starts to, starts to drop, maybe I just end up hunting lower or off to the side of the travel. You know, if I assume they're here, well, before I would hunt like, you know, at a 45 and then get that shot as he came by, maybe now I have to be at a 90 mm-hmm. and just let him, you know, 90 to the travel route just to try to hide us the best we can, because it's, it's definitely totally different. 
But um, let's get into your setup a little bit more. So let's start at the top of the tree and work our way down the tree. So I'm assuming you're hanging your pack and your bow on some sort of gear hanger. What's that gear hanger look like? Yep. So I use our gear strap. A couple of things I really like about it that we designed into it very intentionally is the loops for hanging on it. It comes with five of them. Those are movable. And they're not like plastic hooks because there's some, there's some, you, know, you can find a gear hanger on like Amazon that has a bunch of plastic hooks on it that you can move around the tree, but those make noise like crazy and they're not durable and they don't last. But uh, ours, you know, they're quiet, right? So you can put those wherever you want. Um, the other thing about that is you can really, if you don't need all those loops, you can take some of them off. It's designed to be able to do that. And you can really skinny that thing down. I actually tie a little hair tie in the end of mine as well. So I, I bungee mine up and it's like, geez, I don't know. It, it's like the size of a credit card essentially when it's wrapped up in my dump pouch. So it takes up no room at all, but that's what I hang and use as my gear management system up in the tree. So when I get up, I, you know, set my platform transition to my platform. I should say I tether in and then transition to my platform. Before I take my lineman belt off, I like kind of using, keeping that on to keep myself tight to the tree while I'm getting everything hung. Next thing out of my dump pouch is that gear strap. So I put that on the tree. Um, the tag end of that thing has an adjustable, well, it's a, it's a dedicated hanging location for your backpack. And I just put like a little night eyes s hook carabiner thing on the end of that and that lives there so put the strap on the tree hook the backpack handle because every backpack's got a handle to that clip and then what's really nice is there's one-handed adjustability for the height of your pack with that tag in so there's a little slider built into that and that's again intentional by design because every tree is different so typically you know that pack has to be in a different you know spot to not be in the way for you know a given tree um, the other thing that's really nice is I'll oftentimes shorten that tag so that when I initially hang the bag, it's as high as it can be. And that allows me to very easily access everything that needs to come out of my pack. Typically, it's layers because you get the pack hung. I pull up my bow and I hang that. I run just a Kydex hook on the bow, lives on the bow, and then that just pops into one of the loops. So there's there's no additional things to put on the strap. That's the way I like to do it. There's a lot of really nice bow hangers out on the market. You know, if you do like something to live on the strap or to be placed on the strap as opposed to something extra on your bow. Um, so that's just a personal preference thing. But after the bow's hung, knock the arrow, pull my release out of my pack or wherever that's located on that day and, you know, make sure the bow's ready to go. Uh, then I'll, I'll get my layers out if it's a colder hunt out of the bag, get all those on, and then I'll drop the ba bag down. And again, this is what's really nice about that adjustability with the height of your pack is I'll drop that pack down to like knee height. So it's out of the way or waist height just kind of depends on the tree. But I can just do that with one hand, one finger, just pulling on that slider and it just drops it down. It's nice and quiet, slides down out of the way. But if I ever want to raise it back up, all I got to do is just lift up on that tag end. So the gear strap, like the backpack, is kind of the central part of the system in terms of being organized sort of end to end. The gear strap is that in the tree for me. I completely agree. And I use the exact same gear strap, just the latitude gear strap. And mm -hmm. I have uh, just a little mounted bow hanger that I put on one of those loops. I mm -hmm. actually did take a bunch of those uh, rubber loops off of it just to streamline it. Yep. And the thing that I just want to reiterate here from my standpoint is that you know, slider or like elevator feature, if you will, of that backpack yeah. is awesome yeah. because for a long time I used the strap that was stationary and I would hang my bow on it and I would hang my pack on it. And my pack is like chest height mm -hmm. and it's in the way it's bulky. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Like, yes, I always had easy access to it. That was the only good thing about it. But I also had to make my bow and my pack the same height all the time. 
that little you know elevator feature that we have on our strap the ability to just take that and then pull that tab down and that thing slides down up to how far will that slide on let's say uh 18 inch uh, diameter tree so the strap is a little it's like seven and a half feet so take off an 18 inch diameter tree off of that whatever's remaining is yep. what you'd have so it'd be quite it'd a be bit. roughly three feet yeah. probably roughly three feet that you could raise and lower that pack just by the pull of a strap and the pull of a tab and what i used to do is it would annoy me my pack was by my chest so i would actually take my pack and hang it off my top stick Oh, and I've knocked my pack off my stick before oh my. and it's crashed down to That's the ground no good. <laughs> and you've got $5,000 in camera gear in there. Yeah. And so it's a big deal. So yeah, having that feature for me is absolutely awesome. And the fact that it's so packable, I mean, it just, I'm the same way you are. Like I have to have everything perfect when I go out. Yep. So I wrap it up a certain way. I bungee it tight to make sure it's not going to, you know, unravel or anything. It's just, it's very streamlined. So I love that feature a lot. The next thing I want to get into is your tether and the lineman rope that you're specifically using. So are you using the eight mils or the 10 mils? Uh, most of the time I'm using the eights. I run all of our gear at various times for testing purposes because we're just always constantly testing and looking for um, opportunities to improve the product. Most of the time I'm running the eights just because they're a little bit more packable um, and I'm just a minimalist uh, is kind of how I, it's just how I am. There's not a giant difference between the two. There's a couple of main differences. The 10 mil, if you do like using like a rope man uh, ascender device, which is, it's a device from the rock climbing industry. It's not something we make. It's something, you know, most companies sell at this point. You can find them a lot of, a lot of places online, but they just make it very easy to single hand adjust your rope, um, whether that's your tether or your lineman belt rope. Um, but they have a spec. They only work down to like a nine and a half mil or 10 millimeter. I think it's nine and a half millimeter rope for the Rope Man 1, which uh, there's a couple of variations on that device. Um, there's been some issues with the one that works with a smaller rope in terms of chewing on your rope. Uh, so most guys like that Rope Man 1 device or a Kong, which is actually the one that we offer, which is not something we make. We, we partnered with those guys um, over at Kong. They're a great company. Company. And we sell that one because it works with both the 10 and the 8. And it's a very similar device. So some guys just prefer a certain version of that ascender type device. So if you do like the rope, man, you, we have the 10 mils that'll work right for that. Uh, the 10 mils and our eight millimeter ropes have the same construction. So essentially the core of those ropes is am steel. So you're looking at um, a lot of strength for the diameter and the weight. So they're that they're very lightweight, right? That material is stronger than steel. It was originally developed to replace steel winch cables in the marine industry, right? Because it doesn't rust, doesn't corrode, doesn't break down. It's very abrasion resistant, just like steel cable would be, but it's it floats on water. Like if you were to throw it out on the like at the cottage in the summer, it's going to float. But the core of both ropes is AM steel. Just the 10 mil has more, which makes it stronger and gets you that bigger diameter. And then they both have a very tightly woven sheath of polyester material. So there's two things there that when we were developing these, because they're custom blends on that sheath design. So one polyester is naturally hydrophobic, so it repels water. So it's not waterproof, but it's not going to absorb as much water as a lot of other ropes, like a, a double cord nylon rope, for instance. Big thing is like if you're hunting in the rain or swamps, again, moisture management, if your ropes get wet, they're going to dry out much quicker and they're, for one, not going to get as wet. They're just not going to hold the water. Amp steel doesn't absorb water at all. Like 
So it's just going to flow through that. It's the core that is important as far as your ropes getting wet. But so it's naturally hydrophobic. It doesn't break down from UV light exposure like a nylon does. It's stronger than a nylon. So while the, the core is 90% of the strength of the rope uh, or more, depending on how you're building it, uh, the, the sheath does add a little bit of extra strength. And then we went with a very tightly woven braid, I guess is the correct word. And what that does is it gets us really high abrasion resistance. So the durability of these ropes, because these ropes are not, they're not cheap. You can find cheaper ropes, but these ropes are going to long-term be you know, less costly because they're going to last longer. They're not going to get nicked up by the wear and tear of being a mobile hunter, you know, different, different types of trees and bark ropes take a beating, right? They're, they're constantly being rubbed on. So we wanted a sheath that was as abrasion resistant as possible. Didn't absorb and hold water. Didn't break down from UV exposure. You know, so if you leave them in the truck or something in the summer, they're going to be just fine. But the 10 mils have like a 12, thousand pound breaking strength. I mean, it's incredible. Like you're never going to break those things. Uh, the diameter is more there to work with different devices. But um, if you are a bigger guy and you have some concerns with just, you know, getting used to these ropes, you know, the 10 mils might be a little bit better for you as far as just getting started for that, for that reason, that peace of mind. Uh, but the eight mils are very incredibly strong as well. They're like 5,700 pound breaking strength, right? So um, you're looking at, you know, more than a 10x safety factor for a 300 pound guy, right? Which the sticks and stands um, in our industry have always been tested to a 2x safety factor. So just to put that in perspective, right? They are the factor of safety is five times higher on these ropes than you know uh, tree stands and even safety harnesses developed for tree stands. So guys that are new to saddle hunting, they look at the ropes and they're like, that doesn't look safe. You're only you know hooked in by one rope. Well, that rope is. It's a lot different than, you know, a safety harness with a tree stand. So those are some differences between the two. I, I tend to run the eights just because they're a little bit smaller, lighter. But the 10 mils, I mean, compared to what's on the market, we're the only ones that sell a 10 mil uh, with a custom blend like that developed for saddle hunting. Most other uh, options out there are going to be an 11 millimeter. And they are they tend to be a double cord nylon or polyester. They don't have the Amsteel core. So most of those have a breaking strength around 600 pounds. So about the same as their eight mils. And they tend to absorb water more and are not as abrasion resistant. So again, durability, performance, being as streamlined as possible. Like if you can have a 10 instead of an 11, it's going to be, you know, that much smaller uh, when you pack it up, roll it up. And then lastly, they're like, 35% lighter than an 11 millimeter rope that's got a nylon or a polyester construction. So they're lighter, stronger, more durable, don't absorb water, you know, at both levels for both sizes. So there's yeah. a lot of, a lot of purpose behind that custom blend. Yeah. I run the eight mils as well. And the biggest pro for me is just packability. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say two of those eight mils are like one of the old school 11 mil nylon ropes yep. that we used to run. Exactly. And so for me, I can, you know, it takes up half the room in my dump pouch. And to be honest with you, they're so small that I just actually wrap them up and tie them off in place on my saddle because oh, really? they, yeah, they don't even bug me at all. Like where the old school 11 mils were like half a basketball on your hip. You needed almost. a pouch for each rope. Yeah, you needed a pouch. Exactly. Yep. You needed a pouch for each rope. And I used to do that. But the other thing too, is I ran into issues with some of those uh, cheaper, you know, less thought out design ropes where I would get into like, it would be just about freezing and I would be in like sleet. And that thing would get soaked and then it would oh. freeze on me. Oh, so yeah. now I have a frozen solid <laughs> rope 
that I can't pack up. That mm-hmm. is my Prusik is stuck in place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to work. You know, it's super tight and then you get it loose and then it's, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare scenario. So for me, going to those eights was awesome. Let's get into a couple more features on that. Let's get into the carabiner, if you would, because the carabiner on the, both of those ropes is phenomenal in my opinion. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great options for carabiners out there. We want to make sure we had a good quality option incorporated with our ropes. So they are uh, CE certified, which is um, to a European climbing standard. It, it's interesting for whatever reason, uh, most of the climbing gear stand safety standards have originated out of Europe. Europe's a little bit more focused on safety than I think the United States in a lot of areas. So a little bit more stringent standards with you know product from over there, but. Um, we fall in line with that, those carabiners, you know, it's, um, it's not a giant carabiner. It's, um, on the, I would say on the smaller side compared to a lot of options on the market, um, not too small so that it's tedious to use with cold hands, but you know, it's not overly large. It's going to pack well. So, you know, it's, it's a solid carabiner as far as that is concerned. It's just trying to marry that with the rope. They also, you know, I mentioned the ascender devices, which, um, a lot of guys, find, you know, when they look at ropes, other rope options on the market, they come with a Prusik knot, right? Kind of standard, and they'll switch to that ascender device to make it more user-friendly. Ours, while they come with a Prusik, they also have a little device on there called a tender. And basically what that does is it turns that Prusik into one of those mechanical ascender devices for you. So in a nutshell, our ropes out of the package have single-handed adjustability as far as, you know, the length, right? So if you're and if you've never used this stuff before, think about going up the tree with a lineman belt, which you should have always been doing with a tree stand if you're coming from that anyways. Um, but maybe you, you're not a mobile guy and you're used to kind of a, a vertical safety line that you're going up and down with a Prusik. So a lineman belt's going to go around the tree and there's a loop on each side of your hip on your saddle designated to clip in for that lineman belt. You're constantly, as you're going up a tree and transitioning between sticks, adjusting how much slack essentially that there is in that rope between you and the tree. So you're going to need to add a little bit of rope to transition from stick to stick. And then you immediately pull on the tag end of that that rope to suck yourself nice and tight to the tree once you've made that transition. So you always want to stay as tight as you can to the tree to be safe going up and down. Um, and then when you have your tether, you don't adjust your tether as much at height. You typically tend to kind of find where you want it. And then it's just there for the hunt. There are unique situations at times with certain trees where you may need to add or it's typically add a little bit of length to your rope to make a a move around the tree or make an adjustment. The way that we have our ropes packaged is you can do that without having to buy that, that extra device. So you're buying, you know, a rope that's anywhere from like 55 to $75. Those devices themselves are 50, 60 bucks, right? So they're the cost of the rope. So we don't want you to have to essentially double your cost to get the user friendliness. So you're going to have great performance out of the package with how they're assembled. Yeah. And I, I want to hit home on that too, because running just the straight Prusik for a long time, I've always been a guy that I try to avoid mechanical things as much as possible in my hunting setup. Sure. A, it's little added weight. B, it's a noise factor. And C, it's just like, it's a fidget factor thing. So mm-hmm. for me, I want as streamlined and simple and as efficient as possible with everything I do. And so I always use just a rope with a Prusik on it and I would have two-handed lineman rope operation and tether operation. So when I went to, when you guys sent me the ropes three years ago now, 
I remember sitting in a tree and I was using that tender and this tender is, it's a, it's like, uh, just a, just like a webbing mm-hmm. and then it's got two plastic loops on each end Yep. and what you can do with that, it weighs nothing at all. I mean, it literally weighs just about nothing, but you can stealth strip those little plastic ends. If you want to add a little more, you know, it's just a little more quiet, Yep. but the ability to just climb up the tree and have one handed operation without that biggest sender on there, that's holding your rope down. That's added noise. That's a lot of them are blue or red and they're kind of shiny yep. and you know they're coming from a rock climbing world it seems so i would say that the majority of people that i talked to that are running our ropes didn't even know what the tender was and they actually cut them off a lot of times and so like i've been trying to explain to everybody i'm seeing at these shows and stuff i show them and they're like oh that is unbelievable why am i buying these mechanical devices yep. when i have one-handed operation and it is it's an efficiency thing but it's also a safety thing because you're you're able to tighten that rope with one hand and you're not spending you know you don't have two hands loosening up your prusik and trying to do that so the fact that the ropes come with that standard in my opinion is absolutely awesome i think that that is a huge feature that is just extremely overlooked and it just adds to my overall hunting experience every time I go out. Yeah, that I mean, the ropes are packaged how we hunt with our ropes, you know, and, and we try to do that. All of our gear, we want to be ready to go out of the package. There's certainly, you know, opportunity to customize things. You know, you can do that with anything, but we don't want to build anything that requires immediate modification after it's taken out of the package to be easy to use. Right. So they are packaged how we personally hunt with them. Yep. 100%. The The only upgrade that I have on my ropes at all is I stealth strip the carabiner. Yep. That's the only thing that I do is I just make sure. I do sure that I too. I guess that's probably the one thing that's missing. Yeah. I, I, we might be able to make a little package. <laughs> yeah. Like we got to do something, a little sock for the carabiner. That would be ideal right there. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I stealth strip it, you know, just to go through the upgrade process of this as well. So ropes, is there any other pros and cons of the eight mils first to 10 mils besides the weight rating packability? And, uh, what are the color options between the two of them? So the color options are relatively similar. So our eight mils, the tether comes in like a gray and tan combo, which matches kind of all of our product line, our saddles and our pouches and whatnot. And the lineman belt is a darker like brown with some tan and gray accents. Both ropes are identical, so they're interchangeable. Uh, The only difference is that the lineman belt comes with two carabiners, so you can clip on both sides of your saddle. Some guys only run one carabiner with their lineman belt, and they half hitch or girth hitch, however you want to describe that, one end of the rope to a loop, a lineman belt loop on their saddle. So it just always lives there. I like using two carabiners and and that's why we we package it with two. If you have to transition around a branch, you always want to remain hooked up. So if you got to take out your second rope and, you know, kind of hook up above that branch and make that transition, sometimes it's just easier to unclip from one side versus the other for a particular tree to get around that branch. Um, so I don't like having one side sort of locked in per se. That's why it comes with two. But you could buy two lime about ropes and use them interchangeably and just have extra carabiners, you know, as backup. The 10 mils, they come in basically uh, inverted gray and uh, tan color schemes that directly match the saddle. We actually use the same exact color palette. So they match that one to one. It's just one is gray, primarily gray with tan accents, and then the other is the opposite. So, but as far as differences between the two, uh, I think we've about covered it. You did remind me of one thing that I sort of 
breezed over with the design of the sheath. One additional advantage of that tightly woven uh, braid on the exterior of the rope is the adjustability with the Prusik knot. If you've got a looser braid on the outside of your rope, it tends to bind with those Prusik knots, even with that tended device that we package ours with. So again, it's all about making that thing very easy to use. It still grabs very well as far as, you know, being safe, but it breaks. So that safe, that Prusik knot will uh, break from that locked position much easier. So as far as your platform, what platform are you using? Well, I run both. I am uh, more often than not running our X-Wing. And when I run the X-Wing, I just run the X-Wing on its own. Historically, before we developed our platforms, I've spent most of my time using a ring of steps. I've always liked the ability to walk around the tree, uh, especially for the weak side shot, but probably more importantly, just to always stay on the backside of the tree with whatever deer movement I'm seeing uh, without having to reset up. So if I'm running like our Rebel platform, which is our more traditional design, which is an awesome design, like you get a ton of real estate for the weight. I still like to run a second strap with that one with a couple steps on the backside. And then you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get a lot of comfort because you have a lot of space for your feet, uh, but you can walk around the tree if you need to. The X-Wing I run on its own because of the design. So the the wings and the foot poles and foot placements that um, it provides, I find that I am probably, oh, I don't know, 90% just as agile as I would be with a ring of steps on its own as far as maneuvering around the tree. And that was, you know, designed that way purposefully. So... So let's get into some of the features on the X-Wing first. What are some of the features that are built into this platform? Both platforms share a couple features. So they both, a big one is there is a slot built into the post, the front of the post down near the platform for adding in a secondary strap for steps. If you do want to run those together, which is something guys are doing more and more of. What that does is it allows you to ensure that that strap with those steps on the backside is in the perfect position every time, which is just slightly above the plane of your primary platform because as you walk around the tree your tether rope's going to wrap around and it's going to shorten slightly so you actually want to step up an inch or two as you're going around the tree on a set of steps so uh, that's a cool little feature uh, if you do like to incorporate the two together they both have leveling adjustment which is very common in, in platforms these days but what's a little bit different about our leveling adjustment knob is the diameter of it is slightly larger than the thickness of the primary platform. And what that does is it allows you to adjust the pitch of your platform with your toe or your foot without having to climb down and reach down with your hands and adjust it. So where that really comes in handy is let's say you're on a tree you've never hunted, you're going blind, you're getting set up, you know, you're kind of eyeballing what pitch you want your platform at before you transition onto it, right? So typically you're putting your platform on, it's like at chest level, just above your last stick or even with your last stick, and then you climb up, right? So you're setting your platform before you're actually at the height you're going to be visually. Um, so you're kind of guessing. So sometimes you get that wrong and you climb up there, you transition on, and you're like, man, this this was pitched down a little bit more or up a little bit more, it'd be a heck of a lot comfortable for this next six hours. Our adjustment knob allows you to do is just take one foot and put it on the top of the post and put all your weight on that foot and then just rotate the adjustment knob with your other foot. Without that feature, what you would have to do is climb down to your last stick and reach down and adjust the pitch and then climb back up, which is a lot of monkeying around. So you can just 
quickly adjust the pitch of your platform on the fly in the tree. That's really nice. So both platforms share that. Now, where they differ, the biggest difference is just the overall shape, which when you look at the two is pretty obvious. But the X-Wing, it's called the X-Wing. It's shaped like a Star Wars X-Wing ship. And we actually didn't know what to name it when we sort of showed it to the public at ATA in 2022, but everyone online started calling it the X-Wing. And so we rolled with it. And uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I loved it. So <laughs> there's that's a sidebar. But uh, what those wings allow you to do, they, they do several things for you. So first and foremost, when you're just resting in like a leaning position or even a seated position on the tree, it allows your feet to rest at a wider gait, a much more natural gait. So, you know, typically with a lot of platforms, your feet are tight together. You're out on the front end, front edge of the platform when you're, you know, in a resting position and you start to get a little pressure on your hips because of that. So this allows you to stand at a natural position when you're just resting. It brings you closer to the tree as well. And then lastly, something that we don't talk about a lot is with your feet resting on those wings, part of your feet are actually tend to be touching the tree and you actually minimize contact with that metal platform on your feet. So when it's cold, the X-Wing actually does not suck as much heat out of your feet as a lot of other platforms because you're just not touching as much metal surface area with the natural resting location. So that's really nice. But maneuverability is really the the core aspect of the the overall shape after that. So those wings are, they have a lot of width, not too much width so that it's obnoxious to pack in and out, but just enough so that you can actually swing around and pivot your feet so that one or both feet are on the backside of one of those wings. And when I say the backside, I'd say that it's the side nearest the tree and you can push off of that and take a weak side shot from the back side of the tree. So you don't have to, a lot of guys with a weak side shot, they'll stand and turn on the primary platform with their back to the tree. Well, if you do that while the deer's coming in, that all that movement is right in front of the deer. Um, with these wings, what you can do is you can actually swing to the top side of the tree. All that movement is hidden from the deer because you're behind the tree and take that shot You know, much in a much more stealthy way, essentially. Um, and it, most guys find it's easier to do that maneuver rather than, you know, kind of spin around, do the dance on your platform, get the rope over your shoulder. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's there's videos on YouTube, but you can still do that if you want with the X-Wing. There's plenty of foot room to stand up on it. But moving to the backside of those wings is, is especially for that weak shot, is a big deal. What makes that actually work, because a lot of platforms have an edge near the back towards the tree, but most of them, that edge is located behind the pivot point for the post. When I say behind, closer to the tree um, from the location of the pivot point. So when you put pressure on an edge that is in that location, what it tends to want to do is uncam your platform. So you've cammed that platform down, it's it's biting tight to the tree. When you push on the back, it wants to flip it back up and it gets unstable. And honestly, there are platforms out there where it's a little unsafe if you try to do this maneuver. The X-Wing, that edge sits equal to or forward, meaning away from the tree, of that pivot point. So when you press on the backside of that wing to make that move, it actually digs the platform in tighter and remains stable and safe. Making moves in the tree with a saddle to take a shot, there's a lot of marketing material out there of guys doing crazy things. And to really be effective doing that, you need to be slow and controlled making those maneuvers. That's just going to result in a, a steadier shot. You're going to be able to make that move and get in position without the deer picking you. So you need a platform that stays locked into the tree while you're making those maneuvers. So ultimately, that's a long ramble, but ultimately the X-Wing shape allows you to make moves and shots around the tree 360 much easier without needing steps. Um, and it remains stable throughout that whole process.
Yeah, there's a bunch to unpack there. And I have a bunch of personal experiences that I, I love the X-Wing because of a lot of things. Um, the, the one move you're talking about, the weak side shot, the way that I do that is I'm facing the tree and then I start spinning counterclockwise. And as I'm spinning counterclockwise, so, you know, my face is coming to the left of the tree, I'm turning around, I push my hip into the tree and I actually just let gravity pull me into the tree. And then I can take my left foot and I can push off against that X-wing wing, mm-hmm. and it locks me in like a seated position. And I sit like that. I actually sit like that a lot out of the saddle, just for from a comfort standpoint. It's a very comfortable place to sit with that X-wing because sure. you're just locked into the tree. But then you have a bunch of contact points with the tree for that shot you want to make. Mm-hmm. So it's you know I've been showing this to people at trade shows. It's a lot like just sitting in a tree stand. Like you're even facing the direction the tree stand would face on the tree and you just sit there and you're locked in and you make that shot and you're hidden too because your whole profile is up along the side of the tree. Yep. So it's a very good move to make. I, I completely agree with you that I push off the back of that platform and especially if you have like that bottom strap on with uh with the like an OCB buckle with a couple steps, it really locks that platform in place and you can make that move very easy and it just it's it's very maneuverable. Yeah. Um, swinging to the side of the platform or resting in that location is one that it's a it's something that Alex really loves and always hits on. I tend to hit on the the weak side shot, right? Because of my ring of steps kind of background. I love that aspect of it the most. Alex likes to lean off the side of his platform a lot. Um, that tends to happen a lot in Michigan because you have a lot of does and not very many bucks. That ratio is terrible. So you tend to have to avoid a lot of eyes throughout a hunt before that target animal comes through. And if you look at the angles that are created by those wings and the edges on the central portion of the platform, they were designed so that when you're off to the side of the platform and you've got a foot on each one, you're not fighting gravity. If you look at the Angles created by the wings and the edges on the central portion of that platform. When you're hanging off to the side and you have a foot on each one, you're able to counter gravity because gravity tends to want to pull you into the tree. And every tree is a little bit different. One might be leaning left or right or away from me or towards you. But what that allows you to do is to stay stable off to that side position. And you can kind of swing over, stay behind the tree, let those doe, that doe group move through. And then, you know, they don't pick you, right? And blow your hunt up. So he loves that that aspect of it. And and that was designed intentionally in there because he loves that. I love moving to the backside of it because of my ring of steps, um, you know, background. So, so what is the weight on the X-Wing? That's another big positive too. It's only two and a half pounds. So it's 2.5 pounds. Um, both platforms are machined aluminum. So, you know, they are structurally very sound and very strong for what you have as far as weight. Both have 300 pound weight ratings. We test those third party, uh, similar to a tree stand. They get, they get tested in that fashion, but two and a half pounds on the X-Wing, 2.7 pounds on the Rebel. Uh, The X-Wing surface area wise, even though it's an odd shape or a different shape is the same amount of surface area as like a Predator platform. It's just in different locations. We kind of took that and split it and created those wings. So do you have any upgrades at all to your platforms or do you run it as is? Uh, the, really the only upgrades I make is just adding stealth strips to quiet them down. I mean, they're still aluminum, machine aluminum, so they're, they could be quieter out of the box, I guess. You know, it's something that we want to try to do long-term for sure. But, um, I just add stealth strips to them. Other than that, I, uh, pretty much run them stock. So one more thing too, the texture on those platforms is different than a lot of platforms on the market. Mm -hmm. What is, what's causing that texture? Yeah. So that was a sort of a inline upgrade. And early on, we uh, were doing a a type three hard code anodizing finish on the platforms. What we wanted to do was one, give 
some more grip to the surface of the platform. Uh, but also the machining processes we're using, our fabrication processes to cut these things results in, you know, some sharper edges on the corners and whatnot. And we want to kind of soften that up for folks. So we actually use a special uh, type of powder coat. It's called Super Grit. And it's a, it is the most textured or highest textured powder coat that exists on the market. And so it's a, basically a special blend. And you get this very gritty surface on the platform that is this thing, like it, it would be very challenging to slip on it when it's wet. Like it's, it's that good of a coating. It lasts, it's very durable, it doesn't chip or flake off. Um, but we get questions like, hey, why don't you have a bunch of little traction knobs on the perimeter of the platform in certain spots? And, you know, the answer is like the texture does that. I mean, yeah. this this coating is really nice. And then it it eliminates completely, you know, any sort of sharp, sharp edges that are left over from the machining process. Um, so those go away and then you have amazing traction. So yeah, the, the traction's unmatched. I yeah. mean, I it's way better than having machine traction. If you ask me, like there's no slipping on this thing whatsoever. We tested very, a bunch of different powder coats. Like yeah. that was the one once we tried it. It's like, yep, this is right. We got to we gotta go all in on this. So we made the switch. Yeah. So one more thing that I want to cover here, you already touched on it, but when I'm hunting off a saddle platform, the worst thing to me is the leveling process the majority of the time. And, you know, I'll, I'll get up on my platform and I'll set it, I'll, I'll cam it over and I'm, it's not right. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to climb all the way back down, get back <laughs> on my sticks and then turn that knob and it's a pain in the butt. And then I'll climb back up and I'll test it. And if it's right, I'm good. If not, I have to repeat that process. But the fact that the, the diameter of that knob is big enough and outside the tolerance of the platform where you can just adjust that with your foot is huge for me. You know, I have the same process. Like if, even if I have to go up with it, all I do is put my foot on the post, like cam the platform a little bit with my toe, just toe hook it a little bit, turn that knob the opposite direction, and then I'm gaining height as well. So it's just, it's absolutely awesome. The ability to adjust that on the fly to me is just something that is one of those little details that people don't think about. And then you get a platform that has it and you're like, I never want to have a platform that doesn't have that again. Right. Yeah. I mean, like for you, you do a lot of early season, like close to bedding setups in daylight, right? So you, once you're up in the air, you really need to minimize movement. And yeah. if you did screw that up and you felt like you needed to make the change, you can do that without screwing around. A hundred percent. I completely agree. So I have the X-Wing and that's, you know, if I'm not using my hybrid setup, which is the the small tree stand with the carbon SS sticks, I'll run that X-Wing just on the back of a pack with the SS sticks. And it's an awesome setup. That's like my, now that I'll have a dedicated camera guy, a lot of times I'll probably find myself moving that way a little bit just because I don't have to carry all the camera gear. You sure. Know, it's just like I can be really efficient with that process. So let's get into your sticks now. So you're running the Carbon SS sticks. Yep. Let's uh, let's dive into some features on that. And I mean, you're the mastermind behind those. So oh, yeah. let's, uh, let's hear all about them. Yeah. Three-year project in the making. And we've had a little bit of you know, a delay here getting them out of the door. So we appreciate everybody's patience. They are cranking full speed right now. So we are, uh, we had quite the hole to dig out of and, and we're catching up here quickly. So everyone should have their stuff by opener. And when I say that, I mean by like a September 1st opener, um, if not within days of it. So uh, thank you for remaining patient with us on those. But it's it's coming yeah, quick. So Everybody you, if should you don't have, have them, them you'll fast. have them very soon by the time you hear this. So again, appreciate that. But yeah, that was a project where when we started it, we we kind of sat down and, you know, there's a lot of sticks on the market. Um, there were certain ones that we, we liked and there were certain aspects of various ones that we liked. And we really tried to marry all of our favorite 
features or design elements from a a bunch of different brands that we have used in the past. You know, so we wanted something first and foremost that was lightweight and as packable as possible. And typically those two things, there's a trade-off there because it's it's really hard to make something small and streamlined and also retain the strength. You know, typically when you make something skinnier, you have to make it more dense for it to be strong. Um, If you make it wider, you can actually lighten things up, but it takes up more space. So there is some balance there, but we really wanted to have a lightweight stick that had flush stacking so that it was as packable as possible and it had as low a profile as possible on your back. The the further things stick out, the more they grab brush when you're going in, uh, the heavier it ultimately feels because it's, you know, it's a, it's like a, it's a lever arm off your back essentially. So they might be lightweight, but if they're sticking way out, it's like having a stabilizer on your bow. If you've got a, 30 inch stabilizer, you might only need two ounces on the end of it. But if you've got an eight inch one, you might need eight ounces to create the same effect. So we wanted it very low tight profile. So flush stacking was a goal. Um, we, uh, the big goal or the big sort of vision was also to have a stick that had no metal on it. And that was the one that was the nut that took the, you know, the nut that needed to be cracked, right? That took the longest. These sticks are one singular piece of a carbon fiber composite. There's no bolts. There's no metal components. The strap is an eighth inch diameter am steel rope. And don't run away when I say eighth inch, it's got a 2,500 pound breaking strength, right? So when you're talking, you know, safety factors, it's well above the breaking strength of, you know, the gear that you're going to need. So there is no metal on this thing whatsoever, not in the stick, not in the rope. There's nothing from a metal standpoint to click or clank. The sticks are still a hard material, so they they still make some noise, but it's a much more natural sounding noise. It's not that negative metal clank that a deer associates with humans. Honestly, they sound a little bit like rattling antlers, which is just, you know, by accident, right? Not by design. Uh, but you, you know, just like any other stick, you can throw some style strips on them, which we have some style strip kits we've been working with Lou on that'll be available on the website here very soon. And then they're, they're de- dead nuts quiet after you add those, if that's your preference. But no metal was a big one. No moving parts was a big, was a big one. We don't want any, you know, maintenance required. We don't want to have to check bolts. Even if you've got a stick that doesn't have moving parts, you know, oftentimes you kind of ahead of the season or in the middle of the season after you've been hunting a lot, got to retighten bolts and check things. And um, with bolts, you know, you typically got to put washers in between them to keep things quiet. And if there's a little bit of loosening that occurs, things start to squeak. So these things, I mean, there's just nothing to have to do from a maintenance standpoint. So that was a, that was a big thing. I mean, Alex is a big driver of simplicity on our team because he's not really a gearhead. He's like, it needs to open up out of the package and be easy to use. So Um, That was a big part of it. After that, I mean, there's a lot of different things we tried to marry. So the bite to the tree is really, really important from really a safety aspect. But as a mobile hunter, you need your stick to bite to a lot of different trees, a wide variety of trees. And that could be different diameters, different types, crooked, straight. It needs to grab very well no matter the situation. So we tested a ton of different tooth profiles. Um, and we feel like we have something that, I mean, it, it's very challenging to find a situation where it doesn't grab very well. I don't, I honestly can't even really think of one, maybe a 50 inch diameter, 200 year old red, redwood. But other than that, you, you know, really they're going to grab, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're going to get up a redwood, but, um, that would be interesting to try. Yeah. Grabbing the tree was a big thing, right? The attachment system, we mentioned the no metal, but we designed this wing system and we don't have a great name for it per se. So you can call it what you want, but 
we had to have an attachment system on the stick that allowed for the flush stacking, but also we wanted something that was really fast, secure, and quiet and, you know, worked with a no metal strap system. So, you know, our, our attachment wings on these sticks, you come around the tree with this rope, you come underneath that first wing, you do a crisscross, put it in the notch, come back across again, put it in the notch. And I mean, it takes like three seconds and it's, it's dead nuts quiet. And, um, one of the, the things that I, you know, I think people overlook with it is when you come around the tree tight and parallel with that rope and go into your wings and do your, do your crisscross and hook it up, um, that rope the whole time is always under tension. Like you never have any slack induced with a lot of, with like a cam buckle, you know, you're constantly kind of readjusting the strap and getting the, you know, it's always wanting to fall down. And then you have a strap that's sticking way up from your stick on the tree and it creates instability with the stick. And that's how you get kickouts. So this, I mean, everything is tight all the time and fast and quiet. So I know you're a big fan of the attachment method so far. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And yeah, I mean, it just, like you said, when you have a cam buckle, which is what I typically use in other sticks, because I've, I've done rope mods. I do enjoy the rope mods quite a bit, but the cam buckles on some of the sticks I was using, they just, they're more secure. I always felt better like that. But this new method, because it stays so tight the whole time, it's, in my opinion, it's just, it's, it's as tense as a cam buckle is like, it's really seeding that stick onto the tree. And it's just so user-friendly. Like once you do this a couple times, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to the, the instructions for how to do this are actually in the instruction manual that comes in the box of sticks. So if you have a box of these sticks already, or if you're looking at buying them, there's a, there's a manual in there that has this wrapping method, but the wrapping method, the way it works, it just cinches down so well. I mean, it's, it's one-handed operation. You get really good at just like almost flicking your wrist in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I tie a little half hitch at the end of that, you know, that little double crisscross pattern, little yep. half hitch to hold it in place. And I just, it's, it's ready to rock and roll. So I absolutely love them. Um, another thing about the attachment method too, is if you stack these three sticks together, we're going to do a video on this eventually to show you, but if you stack the three sticks, you can actually take the top sticks attachment method, that Amsteel, and you can wrap it around the wings of all three and then do that same crisscross method while wrapping that rope around the three separate wings of each stick. And it seats those things together. And I'm telling you right now, I have never, I've had a lot of sticks. I've had just about every brand out there and I have never had a brand of sticks that holds as tight as that. And that's, you know, we also have a Titan strap that holds those together as well. But in my opinion, the Titan strap is like that you almost can use it for something else. Yep. It's almost just like, Hey, here's an accessory. We, you have a Titan strap because you can use that am steel and it is unbelievably tight. It's uh, it's funny when you put a product out into the wild, you know, even after you've done three years of testing and development and then like immediately someone like you finds a cool way to do something like that. <laughs> like, you know, we're packaging the, the sticks with a Titan strap, you know, as a way to lock them together um, for packing. And you figured out how to do it without even needing it. Right. Yeah. So that's really cool. I'm excited for you to put that video together because you sent me, I think you sent me a text the other day. It showed me that I was like, wow, that's slick. You know, that it's just one last thing to do. Right. It definitely isn't. It was actually, uh, Christopher Leppert was the original, like he got the sticks oh, really? and yeah, the first day he had them, he put that together and he did it. And then Corey sent me a, a picture of it and was like, Hey, try this. And yeah. I tried it and I was like, this is unbelievable. I still so, got to try it. That's I mean, that's really cool. I mean, the, the management of your ropes or how, whatever strap or whatever, um, is being used to put a stick on the tree is, uh, it's incredibly overlooked because it's a huge pain in the butt. It is. Um, so that was kind of the next thing I wanted to get into with the sticks is like we have on the bottom step some little notches on the underneath side of these sticks and they have two purposes. First and foremost, it's 
to wrap your rope up on each stick at the end of the night. So when you take a stick off the tree to pack it up, you undo your crisscross, it come, flips it back around the tree, and then you're just wrapping sort of a, at like about a 45 degree angle from the wing down to the corner of that bottom step. And there's a little notch right there that grabs the rope and it's like four wraps. And then we've sized the rope so that um, as you come up on that last wrap, you go into the notch, the securement notch on the wing, and there's like a two inch tag. And the end of our ropes have like a little overhand knot with shrink tube over it. So there's like a little ball. So you have this nice little like grab spot and it, it secures right in there and you don't have a giant tag end that's getting in the way. I mean, it's perfect length and it's super easy to do because we have that little overhand knot on the end with the, the shrink wrap, which is all intentional. I mean, it, we want to be able to kind of wrap these things up in the dark real quick pop it in that notch, be done, do the next one. So you can do all three sticks and then, you know, bundle them together either with your method or the strap that comes with them. I mean, it takes a minute or less. Less. It, it takes, like, yeah. It, it Like when you're tired at the end of a hunt, at the end of a night, and you know you've got two miles to get out of this swamp or this hill country with a bunch of briars and whatever it is, you just want to get back to the truck. <laughs> you yeah. know, like you don't want to be screwing around with your gear. You want it to be fast and easy. Um, and sometimes you got to be fast and quiet, you know, in certain situations. Um, if you want to come back to that spot, maybe you don't want to blow stuff out with your exit. But yeah, it's just, again, this stuff's hard. This mobile hunting's hard. There's a lot of effort involved. So simplicity on things like that is, is really important. So that notch in the bottom of the step is there first and foremost for that purpose. Yeah. And it's, it, it is absolutely perfect. It fits perfect. The thing about the, the way that we wrap up the attachment method, and there's already photos out there on our Instagram and all over the place of this, the way that they're actually being packed. Mm -hmm. And when they're packed like that, the way the attachment method is on the stick, it doesn't affect stackability. It doesn't affect how it packs on a tree stand post. It packs perfectly on a tree stand post. I do flip them 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. So they seat better right up against like the, uh, the wing on a tree stand. Sure. So, you know, you can look in the corner there and that thing is just on there perfectly, but same thing with putting a platform on it. Like it's, these attachment methods are never in the way. And that's something with any stick that has a cam buckle, you can, there's never a great way to pack that without it being in the way. They're always in the way in some way, shape or form, or they always require a, at least, at least some sort of intervention or management when you're like putting them on a, on a tree stand, for example, sometimes you have to like pick up on the strap to make sure it doesn't go underneath it, or you'll clank your cam buckle or anything like that. You know, as you're climbing the tree, you're getting noise from your cam buckle. You're getting weight from your cam buckle. The, there, there's all of these factors that are kind of a pain. And with these ones, it's just the attachment method to me is an absolute 10 out of 10. It is, it's absolutely perfect. There's nothing that I would change about it at all, especially now that we know of that packing method that makes it even better. Mm -hmm. um, what I do with my aiders, so the aiders actually, we have a 17 inch single step aider. Yep. It clips on the end of the stick on each side of your, you know, foot pegs on the bottom. And then we have that little cinch. So you cinch it up and then it's, I mean, what does that thing weigh? Like an ounce maybe? Yeah, I think it's right at an ounce. Yeah. It, it's almost nothing. So you're yeah. going to add one ounce to gain another 17 inches a step per stick, which is unbelievable. It's am steel. It's super lightweight. It's very durable. Uh, and the thing about those is the way that they're mounted on the bottom of the stick, they're very easy to pack as well. You know, you don't have to deal with a big cableator, for example, where a cableator, you're trying to figure out how to manage that and wrap it. And it's just, it's, it's a lot more weight too, right? So yeah. to, to me, this is lightweight. It's efficient. You can pack 
jacket with the aiders on there. You don't have to worry about taking them off mm -hmm. and it doesn't change the profile of the sticks whatsoever. So I think that there is a ton of benefits there. I think the more people that get these in their hands and start playing with them, we're going to, there's going to be more things that come to light that are, that are, we're going to be like, look at that. That's yeah, an I awesome feature. I love seeing those kind of things. <laughs> I definitely do as well. So I want to go back to the teeth real quick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been testing these quite a bit and they do stick to the tree very well. Like once I get them, you know, I tighten up everything, I get it seated. I always pull down on the bottom, like pull out on the bottom of the stick and then seat it with my hand before I climb on it. Sure. But I get it seated and it grips very well. Like I can take the attachment method off the tree and it holds on just about every tree I've tried at this point. Mm -hmm. So what was the process for developing that tooth pattern? A lot of just trial and error. Honestly, the two biggest variables to get a tooth profile to work on as many trees as possible is tree diameter and the type of bark. The bigger trees, I would say, oftentimes are the most challenging to get a stick to really bite well. And that's because that larger diameter, it's harder to get more teeth on the, the standoff profile to engage with the surface of the tree. It's just a larger diameter. If you just pick a small little section on that overall of that overall diameter on a bigger diameter, that's straighter than on a small tree. It's going to have more curve, right? So it's easier for that standoff to grab around that curve. Um, so bigger trees and then bigger trees, especially like oak trees, they tend to have that deeper bark that, you know, those heavy grooves and that can make it challenging for the, the teeth of the standoff to engage properly because you might have a gap or, you know, whatever. So oftentimes it's best if the stick just kind of bites through that and, and it gets to a more flatter surface underneath without, I guess, penetrating the bark because I think that's the rule right on public land. But, you know, anyways, uh, the diameter and the bark type are the two biggest challenges that you have to overcome. So, you know, we wanted a standoff. A lot of the, most of the standoffs on the market, honestly, especially with the bigger trees, only have two points of contact, basically the end of each side of the, the stack, uh, the standoff or the V bracket, whatever you want to call it. While that's okay, I mean, it, it, it's, it's sufficient, I guess, to climb the tree. It's more, much more prone to kick out when you only have the two points of contact, especially when you're on the top of the, the stick. Um, if your strap's not perfectly tight and parallel, you know, it gets a little more vertical on you. That's how you get kickouts. It's oftentimes on the larger trees where you don't have good standoff engagement. So ours is designed so that there's at a minimum, even on those biggest trees, a total of four teeth engaged on each standoff. So two on each side. And then as you go down into smaller trees, you actually get even more engagement, right? So that was sort of the, the baseline that we found best to get this thing to bite a lot of different stuff. So we just needed to get the profile to match to provide that. So that makes sense. So as far as the actual material of the stick, mm -hmm. what are the advantage of that carbon fiber composite as opposed to, let's say, aluminum? Yeah. So there's a few different ones. Obviously, you don't have the metal noise, right? You don't have that negative association with a human uh, type of noise that could occur. There's some other big benefits to carbon, though. So especially uh, in the cold, warm to the touch. It's one of those things that you wouldn't think is a big deal until you have something that's warm to the touch. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's, it's kind of like, I guess, if you're a carbon bow guy, maybe you're a Hoyt guy or something, you know, a carbon bow is just a lot nicer to pick up in the cold and shoot or whatever, but they're warm to the touch. The material itself is the material properties 
carbon fiber is a very stiff material. So when you're looking at these lightweight premium sticks on the market, all metals have a lot more flex built into them for its given amount of strength. So if you have a, a metal stick that's been, you know, had the weight cut way down, built into the, the kind of the material properties of that lighter weight is going to be more flex. Ours, even though they're really light, they're very sturdy, like they're very stiff. So stiffness actually helps the stick bite the tree better. So if you have a very bendy stick, it's going to be a little bit more prone to kick out. It's a little bit more prone to those teeth kind of moving around on the tree. They could make noise and creak because of that. But ours, for as light as they are, uh, they're very rigid. So climbing them, they just, they're rocks out. Like they don't feel like they're moving at all. Like once you step on it, it locks in and it just doesn't move. Uh, so I, I really like that aspect of it. This particular type of carbon fiber composite that we're using has a very, we get asked about the stiffness, like in the cold, like, is it going to get brittle? Uh, that's a concern for people because it's new. The temperature operating range for this material is like minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit up to 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Within that temperature range, the material properties do not change. So once you get outside that, then it will slowly start to change, but you know, not really at that big of a rate. So I guess if you're hunting in negative 50, it might be slightly more brittle, yeah. but you know, like it's, uh, the material came from the aerospace, uh, industry. It's used heavily in automotive. It was, uh, developed for much more severe conditions than we encounter in the hunting woods. The operating range, temperature-wise, like the material properties are not going to be affected in a hunting situation. So that's really cool. Yeah. So anybody out there in 15 degrees in Iowa, that I keep hearing this question, right? Yeah. But so anybody out there 15 degrees in Iowa is not going to see any change in that stick. Well, think how much colder it is up at, I don't know, how high in the air does a plane typically fly? Yeah. I mean, was it however many thousands of feet? If it's 15 degrees at ground level, it's negative 20 up there or whatever, right? So if you got parts and airplanes being built out of this stuff, you're going to be fine down on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. uh, just that that is, but th you know, it's a new material, right? This is a whole new approach to a climbing stick. So we totally understand the questions and we welcome them. You know, that's, Absolutely. we enjoy uh, answering those. So Yep. And you know, I would say that when it gets frigid, any gear that I've had in the past makes some noise in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Aluminum sticks start to make a little bit more noise. You know, if you have, sure. if you have a stick that has the uh, V bracket that twists, Yep. That'll start to creak and pop on you. You know, the tree stand will creak and pop on you. Like cold induces noise. It just, they go hand in hand, it seems. So to know those properties aren't changing very much until you get to a point where it doesn't matter. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody's going to yeah. be hunting in negative 50. At least I'm not going to be. I'm going to stay inside and try to stay warm. But but yeah, that's, that's just good to know. So uh, another question I've been hearing a lot about is, why the attachment method has to be per manual, like per the instructions. Why is that so important that people are actually attaching this stick to the tree the way the instructions are telling them to? Yeah. So it's just the the way in which this method was developed, the, the wings are located on the sides of the post. And what that allows for is the flush stacking, right? Other sticks, it's pretty much some form of a Versa button, whether or not it requires a cam buckle or it has the ability to hitch a rope on it on the front side. So we needed to find a way to get the attachment method on the sides if we wanted this flush stacking. What our attachment method does, the way that we um, instruct people to wrap it, is we found that what it does is it takes all of the, the stress and the forces that 
you know, occur in the rope and moves it right into the central portion of the post on the stick, which is the strongest part of the stick. So uh, the attachment method, really, the way our wings work, they're really kind of just there to keep the rope in that location on the post. You know, it's different than having like a Versa button out on the front of a post, which is, you know, traditionally like a quarter 20 bolt or something similar, a, you know, three eighths inch bolt where that thing is, you know, it's there, it's, it's holding the, the vertical forces of, you know, being pulled into that strap when you step on the stick. Ours is just a little bit different, right? The wings are on the side and they're there to locate the strap in a certain location on that post. And then, you know, it pulls into that post. So in in my head, what I, what I envision happening too is, you know, like obviously we're hitching the rope, the attachment method on the one wing, Mm -hmm. but when you come back around the stick, you know, you start, you go under the first wing, you go over the front of the post, you go over the top of the next one. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're wrapping it on the backside of that next wing that has the rope attached to it, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're creating an equal force, the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So you have the force pulling the stick into the tree from that wing, but you're negating that by making sure that rope is actually attached on the backside of that. Yeah. Most of the rope when you, when you do this is actually on the post and it's just making turns around the wings yeah. essentially right you're you're pretty much they almost don't need to be there right you just need something to keep the rope in that location in i mean the spot. rope's pretty much i you know i don't know what the exact breakdown is but i bet you 80 percent of the rope in the tie down process is just around the post yeah it's almost like you're wrapping it around the post so you know it's it's definitely not designed to um like tie the rope on one wing, go around the tree and tie it to the other wing in like the holes or something like that, right? The wings are designed to locate the the rope around the post in a certain location. Yeah. You just don't want that force out on the end of those wings. They're not designed for that. So that's why Correct. that, that's why the directions and the instructions on how to, mm-hmm. wrap, how to wrap that are so important. Yep. Again, it's just, you're wrapping it. Think about it. You're wrapping it around the post and yep. you're using the wings to locate it in a certain location. That makes all the sense in the world to me. Yep. Are you doing anything to mod those sticks? Just stealth strips? pretty much. Yeah, just stealth strips. And, uh, you know, I mentioned I'm more of a five-step aider guy. I've got my own little personal one that I make. If I'm not using that, I would say I don't use that with a camera guy. That's just when I'm hunting on my own. I probably should have said that earlier. So that's another learning working with a camera guy. Um, with a camera guy, you know, I used our, our single step aiders that we offer, which is the other reason for the notch in the bottom underneath side of the bottom step. Besides packing up your rope, it, it's a spot to locate your aider. And uh, those are really nice. So we, we mentioned they're like an ounce, right? So you're, you're basically getting a 30, you know, with these sticks are 19 ounces with the rope. They're 20 ounces with the aider. So you're getting a 34 inch stick at 20 ounces, which is pretty cool. So, and the, the thing that's really nice about those as well as, you know, a single step aider is if you've never used aiders it, and you want to try them, start with one on your bottom stick and just get used to it. But it's, it's so, it's so much easier to get used to just a single stepper. Cause you've always got one foot on something on a stick or the ground if, if you're transitioning your first stick. So you're not, you're not living in the aider up in the air. Uh, which is what you would be doing with any multi-step aider, which is why I don't recommend that uh, ever. That's a personal choice. So they're just, you know, you put your your foot in one of those and then you're onto the stick and you're just getting that extra distance for like nothing, no penalty at all. Uh, There's no metal on those either. 
Uh, you mentioned we've got like a little rubber cinch on the end of these aiders that basically just holds them on the end of the bottom step. Those actually came from like medical masks that are worn in hospitals. They're like, they have these little cinches on the back of the ear loops to adjust the size of, of those. So they, they wear correctly for someone. Uh, we actually crossed those over into these aiders. That's where they came from. And we just sized them appropriately to work with the, the AM steel that is, uh, the aider is constructed from. Yeah. And as far as the aider goes for me, like I'm running four sticks with aiders the majority of the time. I, I like to have them anyways. A lot yeah. of times I might only have two, but four sticks with aiders, I can get over 25 feet without even stretching. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to get six and a half feet per stick when you have that aider on the bottom of it. That's like just a regular step almost. So mm-hmm. I'm only five foot 10. So if you're running three of these, there's no reason you can't be in that, you know, 17 to 20 foot range, depending on your height and, and everything else. So, you know, I would say that the weight to height ratio of these sticks is phenomenal, in my opinion. There's still a lot of guys running like the original single step rotating lone wolf sticks that are 34 inches. Yeah. 34, right? 32, somewhere like that. And they're oftentimes their first question are like, well, how high can you get with those short sticks? Well, that's why we developed the aiders with them in conjunction is you can significantly reduce the profile and weight you're carrying into the woods without any penalty to how high you can climb. So it's, they're equipped with an aider on there. It's equivalent to those old school lone wolves that are honestly just kind of a pain in the butt to carry around. Yeah. So yeah, they definitely were. So the last thing I want to get into is just uh, the saddle that you're using. Mm -hmm. So I personally ran the classic for two years. And then last year at the end of the season, I started running the method two. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of the two panel now. So I can can see myself going down that road for sure. But what are you running yourself? Uh, I'm running our method two in the regular size. That's what fits me. I've, you know, I'm a 34 inch waist. I got small, small rear end, pretty much non-existent rear end. So that's what I run. Yep. So what's the process behind the design of that? Because that thing is like ultra comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another product that, and again, we started the company with our method, our our gen one method, two panel saddle. It's really what we're known for is kind of that two panel saddle design. And there was a little over two years of development that went into that original one, added an additional year. And our method two is, you know, a three-year product as well, similar to our sticks uh, from a development standpoint. But the big problem that we set out to solve with that two panel design Uh, when we first began this, it's like five years ago now, is we found that kind of two things with a single panel saddle design. One, on average, the larger they are, the more comfortable they get. There's more real estate to sit in. But you get to a point where you have diminishing returns. The whole point of going to a saddle system is being lightweight, compact, and streamlined. So you can move around easier. The other issue we were having with them was just lack of adjustability uh, to get it to work for our specific, unique body size and shape because everyone's different. I mean, this thing is wearing on you like a pair of jeans up in the tree. And if you think about like, look at Wrangler, how many different styles and trims of jeans do they have just for men? And there's twice as many for women. So like there's 25 different, whatever it is, one or two of those might fit you. So we obviously can't have 25 different trims of saddles to fit people correctly, you know, which is probably what you'd have to do. Maybe not to that extreme, but um, with a single panel saddle to fit everyone correctly. It's just, you need to have some level of adjustability. So we wanted something that was 
ultra compact, but had a ton of adjustability once you were in the tree to get really comfortable for your, your body size and shape. So the two panel saddle, you know, we used to hunt on Anderson tree slings back in the day. You know, I, I had one that I think my, my mom got for my dad in the early nineties, mid nineties for like whatever, 50 bucks at a Meyer, uh, which if you don't know Meyer, it's a Midwestern Walmart essentially. And that was you know, we did a bunch of modifications to them and it was really comfortable in a tree. You know, you had the two different pieces, you could move them around, get the pressure um, being, you know, holding you correctly. Um, but once you got out of the tree, boy, was it a pain in the butt. It just was an explosion of web webbing in your hand, right? You had to ball it up. Uh, so it was a lot of monkeying around at the base of the tree when you got there, like we talked about previously. So we wanted to kind of take the advantages of that thing in the tree and make it as user-friendly and simple to use as a, as a lot of the new single panels that were coming out in the market. So that's really how it all started. So we created this two-panel, two-piece design. So two-panel is different from a one-panel as there's two primary pieces that separate and can move. Ours actually, when you're in kind of like transport mode, you're walking around on the ground, they connect together with our method two with magnets. So there's magnets in three locations, one on kind of the center back location, and then one on either hip. And they're a, they're a very strong neodymium magnet that is actually coated with a special type of epoxy. So they're waterproof. Uh, so they will not degrade or break down or corrode or anything like that out in the elements. That coating is actually used in magnets that go in windmills for the same reason. Uh, so we kind of brought that in randomly from that that industry. So those magnets are going to last forever. That was a question we got when we first launched that thing is durability on those. Uh, the magnetism is never going to go down. And those magnets don't make noise either, which is yeah. awesome. Well, going from Gen 1 to Gen 2, that was kind of one of the big things we had to figure out is how much material is between these things, um, where they're located, how they're going to be incorporated into the construction from a manufacturing standpoint. And so we had to find the balance of how well they hold so that it's not like coming apart when you're walking around or you're getting hooked on brush. But when you click them together, they don't make any noise. I mean, it's just, it's inaudible from more than, you know, a foot away. Yeah. So they're, they're dead quiet, which is really nice. But essentially the two panel, our two panel is more compact than a single panel saddle when you're, essentially when your feet are on the ground, you're climbing the tree, right? When those two panels are hooked together, they overlap with these magnets and you can connect them with your eyes closed. So it's designed to work in the dark. Disconnecting them is just a matter of pulling down on the, the lower piece. And we have a set of little grab handles sewn into the bottom edge of that, that lower panel specifically there for that. But it is smaller and more compact than a single panel when your feet are on the ground or when you're hiking, or excuse me, climbing a tree. But when you get up in the tree, because you can separate those panels, you have infinite adjustability as far as the depth of that saddle. What that allows you to do is place them on your body where you want support for your body size and shape. So it fits a very wide range of people. We have a couple of different sizes, which helps with that. Obviously some guys, you know, they're just a larger size and need a little bit more uh, real estate or size to wrap around uh, their waist size. So that's why we have a couple different sizes, but uh, you don't need a ton of material from top to bottom to get comfortable in a saddle. You just need support in the right locations. So we find it's most common with our two panel guys will run that top panel on their lower back and that bottom panel somewhere on their butt that just varies a little bit guy to guy or person to person. But what that really does for you, if you are running it that way is you have integrated back support. So we, we actually offer a backband accessory. It's most commonly used with our single panel classic saddle offering. And you know, there's a lot of different brands that offer backbands. The two panel, you almost don't need that. I mean, you know, I'd say 90% of the time I, I don't use one. I mean, you have, what it does is it locks in your lower back 
without any extra dinking around, bringing out an extra accessory and getting that set up. And it feels kind of like the lumbar support you get on a chair or like a weightlifting belt. Um, you think about, you know, uh, being in kind of like an athletic stance and having that nice posture, this locks you in and gives you that posture, which does, you know, it's important for shooting, things like that, but it's just comfortable. I mean, you know, they don't uh, design chairs to, you know, office chairs to support up, you know, underneath your armpits and behind your shoulder blades. It's to that lower back. If your lower back is supported, everything else locks in appropriately. So that's, I think when guys sit in this, the two panel for the first time, that is the most common reaction. I'll place those two panels, like I mentioned, and they'll sit into it and they're like, wow, this is really nice. Like, this is really good back support. So, you know, if you've had a back issue or an injury in the past, you're just maybe you're a little older and you're looking to lighten the load to move around a little more. Um, that integrated lower back support is really, really nice. Yeah. I, so at one of the shows, I had a couple guys come up to me and we were trying to get them in that comfortable position. And the one guy went as far as he had the bottom panel under his butt. And he took that top panel and he put it directly under his armpits. And he's a big guy, but there's there's that much adjustability in this thing. I yep. just want to make sure that like you can run this thing from underneath your armpits <laughs> you all could, the way yeah. down to, I've seen guys run the bottom panel like halfway down their hamstrings, you know, in between their butt and their sure. knees. So there's a ton of adjustability with this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple more features that I really love. It, the, the number one thing to me right away is the waist belt being a rope. Mm-hmm. So is that an eight millimeter rope? It is. Yep. So the waist belt being that eight millimeter rope, you don't have any metal, you don't have a buckle, you don't get the buckle pinch. The rope actually slides within the saddle. And Mm -hmm. so I don't leave it like directly in front of me after I cinch it tight. I move it over to the side so it's out of the way. And then I tuck that tag end just right in my pocket. Yep. So it's completely streamlined. You don't have to worry about any metal on the saddle at all, which is in my opinion, just an awesome thing. Yeah, I think, you know, when you see that rope belt, you it's easy to grasp the fact that there's no metal, it's going to be quiet. What guys don't realize until they try it is how well it holds on your waist when you're going in and out of the woods. I mentioned before, a lot of times I like to carry my platform hanging off the back of the saddle. Or if you're, you know, you're running gear pouches or dump pouches on either hip, you load those up, right? If you have a, a, um, a buckle type of waist belt, it's just kind of part of how they are. They tend to loosen up a little bit over time. You're talking about, you know, a fabric material going through a piece of metal, just a little bit of slippage there as you move around. It's just the way they are. No way around it. This belt has a climbing rated friction knot for the adjustability. So once you move it to a location, just like our tethers and our Lyman belt ropes with the Prusik knots, once you move it, it stays there. So what that does is when you're walking through the woods, you don't get the saddle doesn't ride down. It doesn't want to, you know, sag down. Saddle sag is, you know, one of the things out on social media you'll see guys complaining about, and they're looking for ways to combat that with like s- suspenders and things like that. And we are a less is more uh, approach with our products. So rather than, you know, offering like a set of shoulder straps to fix that problem, we just took the problem out of the product, right? So that rope belt is really cool. I mean, let's say one of the things that's overlooked, you know, it's it's cold, you pack in a bunch of your layers, you get to the tree, you got to put your bottom layers on before you climb, right? I mean, you typically got to pop, you don't always have to, it depends on how you do it, but a lot of guys will just pop the saddle off real quick, right? Put your bottoms on, pop it back on. If you got a metal buckle, the opportunity to click and clank that thing is, I mean, it's going to happen, right? So if you're trying to be quiet and fast, I mean, this thing is just it's slick, right? You just loosen it up, slide it down, put your bottoms on, slide it back up and just pull on, on the tag and it tightens back up. So the rope belt, all of our saddles have that. When we started the company, we offered the, the original method and the classic with both. So you could do one or the other. And it was really interesting to see like initially the traditional buckle style was 
outselling the rope two to one for like the first month or so. And then once people got them in their hands, it did a 180. Like, and then by the end of the year, like, you know, whatever, 75% of people, 80% of people wanted the rope belt at that point. Um, and the ones that didn't, once they got educated on it, they, they changed their mind. So we're the only ones that are really doing that at scale with a third-party tested product. So uh, it's very, very unique aspect to our saddles. It is. And so another thing, another complaint I had of the metal buckle is when I would walk in or even in the tree, the if I wore a buckle on my pants, the two buckles would almost clank together sometimes. Oh, yeah, that sucks. And they would pinch me. Yeah. I would get pinched between the two different metal oh, buckles yeah. if I turn the wrong way. And I'm like, oh, that's driving me nuts. So mm-hmm. the rope is awesome. Uh, as far as the comfortability of the saddle, like adjusting where the pressure points are at mm-hmm. with the adjustable loops that we have, how, like what's the theory behind that? You know, we're using a knot to do that, to accomplish that same thing. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's a couple different two panel saddles out there in the market now. One thing that separates ours a little bit, and we talk about adjustability being a big advantage of these two panels. You look at like a, an old Anderson sling where you got these two panels of webbing and they're actually sliding freely uh, from top to bottom through a set of metal rings. And then off of those metal rings is your bridge rope. So if you're, you're new to saddle hunting, a bridge rope is a piece of rope that extends off of each hip uh, or between across your hips in front of you. And that's what clips into your tether in the carabiner that's on your tether on the tree. Uh, so that's kind of your connection point. And our bridge is attached to the bridge loops on our saddle. And the bridge loops is where the two panels come together on either hip. And those bridge loops, we actually put a piece. So, so I let me back up. The bridge is tied on both ends with essentially a Prusik knot. So what that allows you to do is lock in the knots in a certain spot on that bridge loop. And so what you can do, you can slide those up or you can slide them down. And what that does is you can tell the saddle how you want it to hold you. So if you want more pressure or support in one panel or the other, you just move the knots in that direction. So if I want a little bit more uh, support in my lower back, I move the knots up. If I want a little bit more in my butt, relax my back a little bit, I can move the knots down. Traditionally, two panels in the past, they've sort of just settled wherever, right? If they're free floating, the two panels, it'll settle wherever, you know, kind of your size and shape and gravity determine it to go. And that may or may not be comfortable. So ours is designed so that you can tell it what you want for you or need for you to be comfortable. The design of those bridge loops is a little bit different than others on the market in that, you know, Prusik knots, when you sit into them, they can get really tight and bind up. And most bridge loops are just a piece of flat webbing sewn, you know, kind of sewn into a folded position. Uh, to connect the two panels. Ours, we actually, we have some tubular webbing that goes over that section. And inside there is a piece of eight millimeter climbing rope. Actually, it's six millimeter. It's a little bit smaller diameter. What that does is the bridge loops that these knots are tightening on are now cylindrical. Like a Prusik knot is designed to wrap around a circular or cylindrical piece of rope so that it can tighten down and hold there, but then it can also break and adjust easily. If a Prusik knot is tied around a flat piece of webbing and it binds, it does not want to move. And it is a pain in the butt to make that adjustment. You can still do it, but you're it's not fun. So we actually have designed these bridge loops to essentially act like pieces of rope in their shape so that these Prusik knots hold really well when you place them in a certain location, but they're 
still very easy to adjust when you need to make the adjustment. Yeah. And I mean, I, I typically will adjust mine, but I'll get them set where I want them. And then unless I change to like a cold weather setting where I have a bunch of clothes on, I'm pretty much happy with it. But I will say that they hold very tight and they, they do their job perfectly. Yeah. For me. The the, the one other thing you can do with those, and I, I often, we often breeze over this and it's an advantage of a two panel that people don't really think about. We don't even think about it all the time, but it is something that I do on all day sits, um, is you can run your two panel as a one panel if you want, just not separate the panels. And what you can do on our method too, if you want to try that is take those knots and slide them down all the way to the bottom of the bridge loop. So towards the bottom panel. And what's that, what that's going to do is it's going to take the two panels and make them the same length, hip to hip. And then you can just run both panels under your butt. And it's just a different experience. So, you know, if you're sitting all day and you want to kind of let your, maybe it's hot or something, let your lower back air out, you can do that. You can just put them both under your butt, adjust those knots so that, you know, it holds you appropriately. And hey, you've got a single panel saddle now. So it's like a two-in-one, um, which a lot of guys don't realize, but that is, you know, just another little advantage to them. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely run mine like that from time to time. And for me, the biggest thing is one of the biggest things is walking into the woods, having just that tight profile. Mm -hmm. You know, I run that with those two panels when they're connected with the magnets, it's like on the upper side of my, almost on my lower back, like my lumbar. Mm -hmm. And it's just completely out of the way. I don't have to deal with any sort of snagging of brush or anything like that thing is non-existent when it's on my waist. So I just know I'm I'm good to go. Well, that regular size has when it's in that compact mode is like an eight or nine inch profile top to bottom, which is very small. Yeah. Like it's, it's uh, just kind of disappears when you're hiking in and out. Yeah. Well, hey, Kev, we're at a little bit over the two hour mark on this thing. So it's been an awesome podcast. I think we've covered a ton. So to wrap this thing up, do you have any sort of teasers for products on the horizon or anything that you can give some of these listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's no secret. I, I, we talked about the central part of staying organized, right? Some sort of a pack. You can expect something like that from us in the future. Uh, Can't really go into the details of it, but we do have one in development that we're pretty excited about. Beyond that, I probably shouldn't tease anything, but I can say, uh, I can give a broad teaser that uh, there is a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, we spent a lot of time on those sticks and frankly, it, it slowed down development of some other things, just time, right? Time that was available. But with those being done, there's a lot of projects we've been excited to get to that we're now working on. And uh, it's going to be a fun 18 to 24 months at Latitude Outdoors, I can say, as far as new product is concerned. So keep an eye out. Uh, we got a lot of a lot of cool guys working with us on new things coming. Um, we love having feedback throughout that process. So it's... Uh, It's just going to be a lot of fun. I'll leave it at that. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, hey, Kev, thanks again for uh, coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jake. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time. 